Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies, and uh, certainly want to thank you for your indulgence while we worked out uh, a little bit of technical difficulties. Uh, I am uh, honored to serve as the moderator of today's book forum. Uh, in the aftermath of the housing and mortgage crisis, many, uh, including myself, have questioned the federal push to get ever-increasing numbers of families into homeownership. Uh, clearly, the costs of such have been enormous. Uh, today's book, American Nightmare, reminds us that despite all the federal subsidies, government, uh, especially at the local level, is often one of the biggest obstacles standing between many families and homeownership. Most accounts of the housing boom and bust focus on demand-side drivers of the boom, from Federal Reserve low interest rates uh, to maybe mortgage subsidies from Freddie and Fannie. American Nightmare reminds us of the very basic economics that you cannot have a boom and bust without some sort of supply constraints. And it's at the local level via land use, land use planning where these supply constraints really come into play. Uh, the author of American Nightmare is Randall O'Toole, who has long been a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Randy is the author of a number of books. Uh, his most recent before this book was Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do it About It. Uh, and one of my favorites, The Best Laid Plans, How Government Planning Harms Your Quality of Life, Your Pocketbook, and Your Future. Cato's extremely lucky to have enjoyed a long affiliation with Randy, and we are very lucky to have him here today. Uh, we are joined by two distinguished panelists who will offer their comments on American Nightmare. Our first panelist is Adrian Moore, Vice President for Policy at the Reason Foundation. Adrian writes on a variety of issues for Reason and a variety of formats, from books to op-eds. I believe his most recent book is Mobility First, A New Vision for Transportation in a Globally Competitive 21st Century. Adrian also holds a PhD in economics from UC Irvine. Our final panelist will be Paul Emrath, who serves as Vice President of Survey and Housing Policy Research for the National Association of Home Builders. To say for myself, it's a special treat to have Paul here, as my first job out of graduate school was working with Paul at NAHB, uh, and so I can personally attest to his extensive knowledge uh, and understanding of our nation's housing and mortgage markets. Uh, Paul holds a PhD from economics from the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. I want to thank each of our panelists and welcome Randy to the podium to show us a little PowerPoint. Well, I'm glad we got the PowerPoint working, even though it's not PowerPoint, it's Keynote, which is the Apple version of PowerPoint, because somehow I just have a hard time thinking if I don't have a PowerPoint show to show people. Um, the reason I wrote this book is because I feel like home ownership is something that's worth defending. And after the recent financial crisis, there were a lot of people saying home, the idea of home ownership is dead. Maybe more people should be renting homes. Maybe we shouldn't have such home ownership. Maybe we shouldn't be promoting home ownership. And although I conclude in the book that home ownership is not worth subsidizing, I think it's worth defending. And in fact, what I see more than the subsidies uh, is uh, a serious attacks on the idea of home ownership. And I think we need to defend against those attacks. Home ownership is a relatively new phenomenon. As recently as, as 25 years ago, most people in the world did not live in their own homes. Uh, as recently as 300 years ago, probably only about 1% of people in the world lived in their own homes. England was one of the few countries in the world where home and land ownership was, was prevalent in the first millennium after Christ. But then at the... Uh, 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 when William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066, he imposed a feudalistic system that had been used in most of Europe, in which case, in which only the king owned land. 
and the king would parcel out land to his lords, and they would parcel out land to their vassals, but they all paid rent on land that ultimately led back to the king. There was one part of one county in England known as Kent that fought the king very hard on this, and uh, he's, they succeeded in convincing him to allow people to own land in Kent. Uh, Kent County adopted the slogan Invicta, uh, indicating that they were victorious against uh, King William the Conqueror. Uh, but that was still the exception rather than the rule. In 1629, King Charles I, who was much more uh, best known for having been beheaded in 1649, in 1629 he granted land to settlers in uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony using Kentish rules, meaning people could actually own land and would not just be vassals of the king. And so from then on, Americans, as, as people settled America from Europe, and especially in the uh, uh, English colonies, they held the idea of land ownership and home ownership very high. Even then, land ownership was restricted. Uh, one key tenant of property ownership is that you must, to be a true owner, you must be able to sell your property. But most lands in America uh, were governed by what's known as entail, which is a requirement that you can only uh, bequeath your property, generally to the firstborn son, not to anyone else, and you could not sell it. Thomas Jefferson managed to convince the Virginia legislature to abolish entail. He, he died uh, saying that that was one of his six greatest accomplishments. And most other states, uh, as soon as the uh, revolution succeeded, most other states quickly abolished entail and primogeniture, the idea that only the firstborn son could uh, inherit land. For the next two centuries, America was the leader in home ownership. It was not easy. It took a long time, but eventually America reached a point where about two-thirds of American families owned their own homes. And that was unusual still worldwide until the fall of the Soviet Empire. At that time, suddenly, many of the former Soviet countries, including China, quickly privatized housing and uh, home ownership rates then grew spectacularly worldwide. Uh, and you can see here home ownership rates in 2009 in uh, countries all over the world. If your favorite country is missing, look at page 225 in my book, uh, and I have it for as many countries as I could find. As you can see, home ownership is strongly tied to income. Wealthy countries like Hungary and Lithuania and Iran and Greece have high homeownership rates, whereas poverty-stricken countries like Germany and Switzerland have the lowest homeownership rates in the world. Well, no, it turns out homeownership is not at all related to income. Instead, homeownership rates are related to the government policies of the countries uh, in which we see these different rates. And I spend a lot of time in the book exploring what policies lead to higher and lower home ownership. As I mentioned, uh, the United States was the leader. You can see today, the United States is right in the middle, actually. Uh, about, a little, about 65% of the world's families own their own homes, and in the United States, it's about 65%. Uh, but when it was the leader, Hernando de Soto, in The Mystery of Capital, said 
that home ownership rates were one of the reasons why Americans were so wealthy. It was because if you owned your home, you could start a small business. You could borrow against your home to start that small business. And he noted that a majority of businesses in America were started with the uh, uh, income or with the a loan against the, the value of the person's house. Uh, home ownership also helped children make it in, in school. Children, especially in low-income families, after adjusting for other things, such as the uh, number of parents in the family and, and other factors, children in low-income families scored significantly higher if they lived in a home that their family owned than if they lived in a home that their family rented. The family could also borrow against their home to put their kids through college, thus allowing the, the uh, intergenerational economic mobility that the United States is so proud of, and yet, distressingly, is a lot less than we would like to think. Uh, and in fact, I feel like there's a barrier, not between the 99% and the 1%, but between the middle class and the working class. It's very hard for children of working class families to make it out of a working class uh, situation and become middle class. In other words, become college educated and, and get jobs that are based more on thinking than on physical labor. And one of the reasons why is because we have increasingly put up barriers to home ownership. Not many people realize it, but in the 19th century, home ownership rates among the working class were about three times higher than home ownership rates among the urban middle class in the United States. The reason for that was that working class families regarded homes as a source of income. They would often build two-story buildings. They called them two-deckers. This would be three apart, two different apartments, or possibly three. They would live in the upstairs apartment and rent out the downstairs apartment, or vice versa, and thereby have a source of income. They would grow crops in their yards. They would have livestock in the backyard. They'd take in borders. Uh, the Census Bureau in the 1890 census found homes in uh, 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 Detroit that had five families with a total of 28 people uh, because the, pe the owner of the home was taking in borders. They would have in-home businesses. And at that time, it was very cheap to buy a house. Uh, there was a home builder in Chicago who was selling houses for anywhere from $100 to $1,000. The higher cost was mainly if you hooked up to sewer and water. If you didn't need to be hooked up to sewer and water, you could get a home fairly cheap. And you can find these houses still today in Chicago. Uh, uh, they're a little more expensive today, but they are among the more affordable ho homes in Chicago. The middle class did not see a home as a source of income, and so they did not regard home ownership as, as that important. In fact, they feared home ownership. Why? Because if you bought a home, you didn't know who was going to move in next door to you. You might have somebody move in next door who would have backyard livestock and take in borders of uh, disputable repute. They might uh, uh, make more noises. They might make foods with strong smells that you don't like because the Working, at that time, working class had a lot of immigrants who had made foods with garlic and strong cheeses and things like that, whereas the middle class tended to be Anglo-Saxon and ate a rather bland diet. So the middle class, lacking that protect, protection, tended to rent their homes so that they could move if somebody they didn't like moved in next door. 
Now, there were some very low-income people uh, in the 1890s and 80s who lived in very high densities, particularly in New York City. We didn't see this in other cities as much. They lived in very high-density tenements. They tended to be five- and six-story buildings. They were very narrow. They had virtually no windows except for opening on uh, uh, little air wells that were in the buildings, but they offered very little light, and uh, people would throw their garbage out, and so they ended up smelling a lot. But if you lived in New York City, you probably had a job in a high-density factory, and you probably couldn't get there except on foot, so you had to live in fairly high densities. And uh, a series of photographs published of these high-density tenements raised a lot of concerns about housing in America at the turn of the 20th century. And the two, the two big questions in people's minds were, how do we make sure that lower class people have better housing? And second, how do we make sure they don't move in next door to us? Well, the second question was answered first. And that answer was initially through the use of protective covenants. So uh, developers of suburbs would pr put protective covenants on their suburbs. And one of the pioneers was a man named J.C. Nichols, who developed suburbs in Kansas City. And uh, he advertised that he'd put covenants on them to make them exclusive. Now, it wasn't just exclusive and restricted uh, so that blacks couldn't move in. The, 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 the myth is that these were racist, racially restrictive covenants, but it wasn't. It was restrictive against lower income people. You had to, the house you bought on a lot you, the house you built on a lot you bought from J.C. Nichols had to cost at least $5,000. This was at a time when a working class house would cost $1,000 if, if they could afford it. So he made housing unaffordable for the working class and that's how he made his tracks exclusive. Um, but that only applied to new developments. So then somebody conceived of, well, let's take existing cities and do the same thing through the power of the state. And they called it zoning. And they would zone entire cities so that uh, all the housing in the city had to meet certain standards. Some of the standards were based on health. You had to be hooked up to sewer and water and things like that. But most of the standards were arbitrary and made housing more expensive and made it unaffordable for working class families. So naturally, the working class families moved to the suburbs. They moved to outside the city that was less regulated. So the next step was to regulate entire counties and uh, uh, make sure that the, it was impossible to move far enough away that you could get away from this regulation. And among the kinds of regulations they included were you could only have one family in a house. You couldn't take in borders. You weren't allowed to have backyard livestock. You weren't allowed to have in-home businesses. All the things that the working class regarded as necessary for them to be able to own a home, and in fact, the, the main incentive for them to own a home. Unfortunately, this middle-class scheme to retain home ownership as their exclusive domain was foiled primarily by Henry Ford, who developed the moving assembly line for building cars, making cars so affordable and incidentally doubling worker pay that workers could afford to buy cars and drive out to the suburbs. Also, the factories moved out to the suburbs because the moving assembly line factories required a lot of land. And so you had to be able to drive to get to the factory because they were out in the suburbs. And so you bought a car, and then you bought a house in an area that was unregulated, and you built, uh, uh, lived in that house. 
At the same time, there were other kinds of innovations. There were financial innovations. In the 19th century, if you wanted to buy a house, you bought the, you had to pay at least 50% down payment because you got the deed to the house when you bought it. And it wasn't until about 1890 that somebody thought up the idea, let's not give the deed to the buyer. We'll let somebody buy it for a 10 or 20% down payment, but until they get pay off 80 or 90% or 100% of the house, I'll keep the deed for myself. So that allowed people to buy a house with a low down payment. Also, in the 19th century, most loans were uh, you paid off the interest, and then you had a balloon payment at the end of five years. They were typically a five-year loan, and you only paid interest. You did not pay down the principal. And somebody came up with the idea of an amortizing loan, where you paid interest and principal each month, and after two or three years, you'd pay more of your pay would be going for the principal, and less would be going for the interest, because you had lower, a, a smaller principal left. And the, what were called building and loan societies, later named savings and loan societies, promoted these amortizing loans. Uh, we also had construction innovations in the early part of the 20th century. Some construction companies applied Henry Ford's assembly line techniques to building homes. These were uh, most strongly developed after World War II, but even before the war, there were some companies that would have one crew that did nothing but lay foundations, another crew that did nothing but frame the house, another crew that did nothing but put up walls, another crew that did nothing but, but install the electrical and plumbing, and another crew that did nothing but paint. Those kind of assembly line techniques reduced the cost of housing, and there were even kit homes. You could buy homes from Sears Roebuck's or Montgomery Ward's, and they'll just send you all the pieces, and some assembly would be required. Um, those things, particularly the financial innovations, but also the construction innovations, allowed the working class to overcome the barriers that the middle class had put on home ownership. And we saw a huge increase, particularly in urban home ownership rates after World War II, uh, from about 40% to 60% uh, of American families lived in ho uh, homes that they owned. That 20% increase, which you notice flattened out in the 1960s, that 20% increase is basically working class families being able to uh, move into homes that uh, they could own themselves uh, uh, despite the, the middle class barriers. So naturally, the middle class thought up more barriers. They declared that there was an evil in the country known as urban sprawl. And we needed to fight this evil with a war on sprawl. Now, it was okay when wealthy people moved to suburbs. It was okay when middle class people moved to suburbs. But when working class people started moving to suburbs, suddenly it wasn't okay anymore. Basically, they fought the war on sprawl by convincing many states and a number of urban areas to create urban growth boundaries around cities. This is my former hometown of Portland. The urban growth boundary encompasses uh, about 24 cities and unincorporated parts of three counties. Outside the boundary, you can see the boundaries on the, uh, in the middle, and on one side we have urban land, on the other side we have farmland. Outside the boundary in Oregon, you cannot build a house on your own land unless you own 80 acres, you actually farm it, and you actually earn $80,000 a year farming it. That they are very proud to note that they've only that Oregonians have only built 100 houses per year since those rules were passed in rural areas. Meanwhile, in the urban areas, Oregon and Portland in particular have declared war 
on the single-family home. And uh, in uh, 1996, when they declared this war, 65% of Portland-area families lived in single-family homes. They want to reduce that to 40%, which means 60% have to move into multifamily homes. They've zoned neighborhoods of single-family homes for multifamily, and the zoning is so strict that if your house burns down, you're not allowed to rebuild it. You have to build an apartment building instead. And it turns out 17 out of 20 single-family homes are owned by their occupants. 17 out of 20 multifamily dwellings are rented. And so a war on single-family homes is a war on home ownership as well. This is the kind of multifamily homes they're building in Portland, except, excuse me, that's not in Portland. That's actually in the former East Germany. Here's the one in Portland that they're building. The difference is that as soon as the East Germans got their freedom, they all moved out to single-family homes, and so the building I just showed you was about to be demolished. Whereas Portlanders have lost their freedom to buy affordable single-family homes, and so uh, a lot more Portlanders are moving into places like this, whether they want to or not. Now, if there are no land-use regulations, Housing supply is what economists call elastic, which means the supply curve is almost horizontal. So if the government increases the demand by lowering interest rates or by passing a mortgage interest deduction or by uh, making subprime loans more available, the increase in demand does not change the price of housing. All it does is lead home builders to build more homes. The price of housing remains unchanged. However, if you restrict supply, if you make it really hard to build new single-family homes, if you put in a delaying process, making it take five or six years to, or more to get permits to build those homes, you end up with what economists call an inelastic supply curve. So a very small change in demand can lead to a very large change in price. And this is exactly what's happened in those states that have followed the war on sprawl. We can get information from Coldwell Banker, which each year publishes uh, the average cost in cities all around the country of a 200, well, it says 205 square meter. It's a 2,200 square foot, four bedroom, two and a half bath home with a family room and a two-car two garage in a neighborhood that they consider to be suitable for a middle manager, in other words, a middle class family. So this is a home like that in Houston. It recently sold in 2005 for 149000 As of 2006, they said it was worth $155,000. Uh, 2006, of course, was the peak of the housing bubble. By 2010, uh, that price had fallen to 187000 Well, I guess it increased to $187,000 in Houston. Houston has no land use restrictions. It has no zoning. The counties in Texas aren't even allowed to zone. So there was no bubble in Houston. Housing prices did not increase significantly when uh, uh, there was a a supposedly a national housing bubble. And housing prices did not fall significantly uh, after the crash. Portland was very different. Uh, in the midst of the bubble, um, housing prices, as a result of the bubble, housing prices had quadrupled from their price just a few years before. And uh, uh, as of 2010, they had whoops, only declined a little bit, but they had declined. Now, how come it's not showing? There we are. 
They declined a little bit, but they had declined. They've declined even more since then. Oregon's bubble peaks a little bit after California's. The biggest bubble was in California. 2006, this home uh, was worth 1.4 million in San Jose. Uh, it fell to less than half of that by 2010. San Francisco, almost 1.4 million, fell to uh, 800,000 in 2010. So when you have supply restrictions introduced at the local level, meanwhile the federal government is trying to promote home ownership, you get a perverse effect. You get, instead of more home ownership, more houses, you get higher prices. The higher prices actually reduce home ownership rates. So studies have shown that the mortgage interest deduction nationwide has almost no effect on home ownership because while it does boost home ownership in places like Texas and North Carolina where they don't have housing restrictions, it actually reduces home ownership in places like uh, California and Oregon where we have these housing restrictions. Uh, there's an index of income e inequality called the Gini Index. The lower, the better, because the more income equality we have. And we can see in the United States, we had our lowest levels of income inequality in the 1960s, which was the time when there was very little land use restrictions. The middle class, uh, or the, the working class, was fast catching up to the middle class. They were owning the same kinds of homes, driving the same kinds of cars, wearing the same, same kinds of clothes, and yet middle class and working class tastes were still very different and there were still cultural clashes, which is why I think the middle class promoted the war on sprawl. I'm sorry to say that income inequality has increased since then to be much higher, and I think that the barriers that uh, the middle class has put in against home ownership have contributed to that increase in inequality. I feel like that we don't have as mobile a society as we like to think. We like to think that somebody can be working class and their children can be middle class. But as one indicator of that, the last American president who came from a working class family was not Obama or Bush or Clinton, but James Garfield, uh, which was a long time ago. Um, Every American president since then has had a middle-class background. We can look and see which states passed these laws that uh, tried to create a war on sprawl and see that the states that passed the laws also are the ones that had the housing bubbles. Uh, California, Oregon, and Washington had laws. Nevada and Massachusetts are kind of special cases. They didn't have a statewide law, but in Nevada, almost all the land is federal, and uh, uh, restrictions on sales of that land led to increased housing prices in the 2000s. In uh, uh, Massachusetts, they gave up on the idea of county government, so cities control everything, and that effectively became a growth management plan. So we see we had huge housing bubbles in cities and states that had these kinds of restrictions, and yet here's what housing prices looked like in cities and states that did not have these restrictions. Uh, basically, there was some increase in prices, but it was not very big. And after the, the economic crash, there was a slight decrease in prices, but not very much. And it, the decrease came after the financial collapse, not after the housing bubble was pricked in other states. We can see here, uh, state by state, the, the peak of the uh, prices in the states that don't have housing bubbles was, took place several years after the peak in the places that do have housing bubbles. So my message is, 
I don't think we need to subsidize housing. I do think we need to defend home ownership. I think we need to defend it against those who want to somehow to create a war on sprawl because they don't like the people who are moving in next door. And that's uh, what the book is all about. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks, Randall. Thanks, all of you. Um, so this is, a, you know, this is a darn good book uh, for starters. Since this is a book forum, let me just throw that out there. I will. I'll add one small caveat. Uh, I, I've known Randall for quite a while, and you, as you all just heard, he he has a distinctive voice, and my stupid brain is adamant as I read this book that it is in Randall's voice. So I had 250 pages, and you know. A book's not written in a conversational tone. So it was basically I had 250 pages of Randall reading out loud the book to me in sort of a lecture format. And in spite of that, I will say that, you know, I got through it in just a couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, that the, the material overcame my, my bizarre psychology, thank goodness. <laughs> um, and I didn't, I didn't really see that coming. And once, once I noticed, I couldn't shake it. But I... Housing is a fascinating policy area. It's, it's uh, not very well treated uh, most of the time. I think most housing policy uh, discussions that I've been involved in, I've thought, have been pretty crappy uh, and dominated by anti-sprawl, uh, you know, <coughs> weird local government uh, debates of various kinds. Um, and likewise, there's not a lot of great books on housing out there. I mean, I think a, a book that did a good history of ownership in the United States would be a pretty good and interesting book, a book that that actually analyzed the housing bubble that we experienced uh, in a more multifaceted way would be a good book. And I think uh, a book that actually explains in sort of a primer sense almost, though not as pedantically as that, how housing markets actually work would be a good book. And for, you know, this book does all three. It's kind of a trifecta. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, when, I, when Randall first handed it to me and I just flipped through and looked at the chapters, I said, oh my God, you've mixed things that don't get mixed in housing books. How amazing. And, and sure enough, uh, it all, all panned out. So I really, I really enjoyed that about it and, and I think that, that highly recommends it. Um, one thing that, that Randall really left implicit in the book rather than explicit that I think is, is worth emphasizing is, is this concept that I attribute to Howard Hussack just because that's who I learned it from, but he may have got it from someone else for all I know. But this idea that, that, that there's a housing ladder, that the market is, that housing has tiers and the market sort of incorporates those tiers. And, and that's important that most people don't think about it like that. Uh, including, unfortunately, the real estate industry. Uh, at least they don't publicly think about it like that. Maybe in their actual operations they do. Um, but, uh, but in fact, that's crucial because somewhere along the line, uh, we got the idea in this country, largely out there, out there, you know, you start talking to parents who have children nearing the age where they might be buying their first house. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of those parents you talk to will think, they want their kids to own a new home. And somehow we got the idea that first homes should be new homes. And I think that's kind of 
came about because of the the mass suburbanization we had in 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 you know the the 70s 80s and and 90s um there was so much of new housing uh was available that more than ever before the, your first house could be a new house but that was actually the exception to the rule which is new a person's first house is usually an old house. Affordable housing is old housing. Affordable housing is not new housing in any sort of logical market. It's only once the government started really distorting this market that affordable. we got this idea that affordable housing should be new housing. Is new housing should be new housing, and that's where, uh, that's where it all goes off the rails at the local government level because no longer do they think of addressing the affordable housing issue uh, that may come up as, well, okay, uh, is there is there entry-level housing available in the market? It's no. Well, wait a minute. Somebody's got to build cheap houses <laughs> instead of, no, how about the way a real-world market works? No, somebody build really expensive houses, and people who were in, in medium homes will move up as they, you know, reach their 40s and they're moving up uh, in, the, in their income and they want to buy more expensive homes. And uh, people who are in their 20s buying their first home then buy the older homes. I mean, that's what I did. I bought a house that was built in one of those mass production, uh, Lakewood, California, uh, where they, they, they built it on a production line principle. And it was a 50-year-old home was the first home I bought. Um, so that the loss of recognition that housing, the housing market operates like a ladder like that really, really distorts the way uh, policymakers at the local level think about housing policy. You combine that with this sort of anti-suburban housing, you know, jihad that's existed for 20 years or so uh, in, in the United States, and you get, uh, you get a, uh, just a, an incredible mess. I mean, most of you probably have been blessed to never, like, really have, have to get involved in a local government and I mean, you know, move move away from some place like Washington, but you know, a Midwestern or Western or Southern, medium-sized city or or town uh, housing policy debate or land use policy debate. It's 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 a crazy, crazy place. I mean, Portland, where where Randall's had to suffer the slings and arrows for so long, is you know is, is an outlier in many ways. Though of course, it embodies a lot of principles that get applied by all these other small communities all over the country. But I've just constantly been amazed at how much it distorts local politics. I, I mean, I've gone to communities that are really conservative in all their other sort of public policy spaces where obviously everyone on the city council is basically a Republican. And uh, you, you, to, to make the argument that, you know what, you don't need to solve the affordable housing problem. What you need to do is let the market work and there will be affordable housing, just like there's affordable everything else that you guys don't control the market in. So have you noticed that the one thing where you control the market is the one thing where you have an affordability problem? And it's, no, no, not seeing that. Uh, affordable housing, it's a public policy problem. We've got to do it. We'll get crucified if we don't make sure there's affordable housing. And like the proverbial guy who only has a hammer so everything looks like a nail, there's only one tool that government local government officials have, if they're, we're not giving up on growth controls and restrictions and zoning and demanding more things from builders if we're going to let them build and, and uh, smaller lot sizes and all of our little pet policies. We're not letting go of any of that. 
So if we need want affordable housing, because with all those restrictions, prices just keep going up, we're going to have to mandate it. We're going to have to force builders to build affordable housing. And uh, so in these restrictive housing markets, you, know, you don't see this in so much in Texas and Georgia. You do see a lot of this in California and Massachusetts. Uh, one of the popular forms of this is something they call inclusionary zoning. Uh, so they say, okay, you get to build 1,000 units in your development, oh, Mr. Developer. Uh, but you know what? You're going to have to make uh, 45 of those units affordable um, and higher density or whatever. You know, they like to play around with the, the restrictions. And so basically, you're going to have to build a bunch of units and sell them at a loss so they're affordable. And uh, we're going to ignore the fact that, like, my six-year-old can figure out, well, that means the price of all the other units has to go up, right, to offset the loss. Well, of course it does. Uh, and so in creating affordable housing with the hammer, the only tool they've got, they drive up housing prices. So what Randall just described is going on the absurd uh, uh, unintended consequences of national housing policy hoping to improve home ownership, actually driving up housing prices, plays out in an entirely different but totally logically consistent, <laughs> illogically consistent way at the local level whenever they try to grapple with affordable housing. So it's perverse from top to bottom, let's just <laughs> let's say that. Um, I think the... Uh, uh, I, I was going to talk a little bit about what... what Randall said about the bubble and, and land use restrictions, but he actually really nailed it <laughs> in his slides, so I don't think I, I have a lot to add to that. Other than, uh, again, I think because of people's getting buy-in for that story, which is so obvious, you know, even when you just look at those two graphs, is a challenge because across the political spectrum, uh, culturally at the local and, and largely at the state level, uh, there's just this idea that housing markets work is just crazy talk. And uh, the idea that we as government policymakers don't have to, have to, we're compelled by sheer, the sheer logic of the way the world works to uh, control land use decisions, to control what gets developed and what doesn't. Otherwise, there'll be chaos. And therefore, inexorably, we must have to deal with the pricing impacts of that. Since we're driving prices up, even though we won't admit that, we have to force uh, uh, somehow prices to come down or affordability to exist where no affordability exists. And so you have, you know, places like Huntington Beach, California, where there's nothing affordable, but lots of low-income people work. And so the, 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 the local government is like, well, where are these people going to live? I said, well, not in Huntington Beach. They're going to live in Santa Ana and drive to Huntington Beach. Well, that's horrible. You can't have people having to drive. Uh, you know, maybe if we had a light rail line between Santa Ana and Huntington Beach, we could live with that, but we don't. And, and still, it's, no, logic compels us to think about how we can force there to be housing within our town for people who work in our town. We can't allow trade in labor across communities. That would be crazy. So, it, like I say, it doesn't take very long getting involved in this thing to see the multiplicity of ways in which uh, uh, the, the whole thing has gone off the rails. Uh, Randall's book does a great job of capturing uh, how all of this stuff fits together, uh, which I think is necessary. His recommendations at the end are actually are, it's a really nice uh, set of, of policy recommendations to try to sort of pull 
the pillars out from under this mess so that uh, the market, you know, you can collapse all these stupid policies and the market can actually start to reassert itself. Um, and that's really fundamentally what it comes down to is housing, shelter, land, it's a commodity. I mean, it's a very clean, clear and crisp commodity. Uh, there's no reason why markets can't handle land and housing just as efficiently as it handles apples. And yet we've, we've through public policy, turned it into this bizarre non-market uh, product, uh, and, uh, and we're reaping the consequences of it. So Thank thanks you. for writing the book, Randall. <laughs> All the podium is yours. Thank you. Just give me a second here, and we'll see if we can. Um, where's it? Oops. Where did it? Uh, what's there? Insisted on opening it in, but we're going to do it in this one. There you go. Okay. Uh, Great. Thanks very much. I'm uh, really happy to be here, and nice to see Mark again. I, I did, in fact, give him his first job, uh, his first full-time job out of school, and uh, I still think that was a good decision. So <laughs> you know, uh, feel free to assign credit or blame as as you see fit. Um, I, I want to echo that. It's a very interesting book, and it covers a lot of territory, as you've already seen. So um, I don't think I'm going to go back to uh, William the Conqueror, but uh, tr try to just hit a few, uh, few, uh, few highlights and raise a couple of questions that, uh, uh, that, that struck me. So I'm going to, uh, um, going to start with just agreeing that growth management policies cause problems, uh, and you've, you've seen a... Uh, a lot of that described, that was a good exposition. I'm going to raise a little bit of, uh, of a, a question about if how strongly they're responsible for all of the problems claimed in the book. Uh, just say a bit about the, uh, the, the recommendations right at the end. And, um, and then I want to just uh, highlight a couple of uh, individual paragraphs out of the book that I thought were very interesting. I don't want people to... Uh, to uh, overlook them. So on the, uh, the central uh, thesis here that growth management policies cause problems, and I've got a, a quote here from chapter three that uh, talks about impact fees and time-consuming, onerous permitting processes and how those drive up the, um, uh, the cost of producing housing and, and, the, and the price of homes and uh, while providing dubious benefits, and that is right. Uh, right square in the center of what a lot of my research has, has, has shown also. Uh, an article I produced last year shows that, uh, agrees with all of this stuff from chapter three of American Nightmare and, and uh, comes up with an estimate that on average, government regulation accounts for about 25% of what people pay for the price of a home. And um, just because I thought people may find that interesting, um, I gave you a breakdown, and you can see how, how first of all, uh, so we've got two, um, two main sections here. The top one is stuff that happens 
uh, when the, the subdivision is being developed, and uh, the, the second uh, uh, table is, 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 uh, is regulation that hits when a builder is actually building the home. And you can see uh, you got 16.4 and 8.6%. They add up to 25 in the average. Uh, we've got some highs and lows there, but let's just talk about the average. You can see that m a lot of it, uh, although this construction impact is not trivial, you know, 8.6%, that's, that's significant. You know, you think of what that translates into in terms of a two or $300,000 home or more if you're from around here, of course. Um, but a lot of it is up at the, uh, the development phase. And where does it come from? Well, there's a, there's a cost of delay. Uh, you know, nothing but government making the process take longer. Then there are actual hard fees like, uh, 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 like uh, you know, applying for approval. There are various, like, uh, if you're not involved in this, it, it really can be very complicated. You might have to do environmental impact studies, all sorts of things. Uh, leave land left unbuilt. A lot of times they require that. Uh, and then just changing development standards, that, that means you can, you know, either you can build fewer things on a, 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 a lot or it costs more. And, um, and this stuff is all up on, on, online in the article, how government regulation affects the price of a home. So it agrees very well, and I just put some hard numbers to a lot of the things that uh, Randall was saying. Um, a couple of particular things uh, that maybe he didn't emphasize a lot, but I think you don't want to overlook, is the effect of building codes and standards. Things like fire sprinklers, which are in a national code and are being you know, argued over at the local level right now. There's kind of an interesting thing with energy efficiency and IHE, which is indoor air quality and ventilation, because uh, um, government uh, has been ratcheting up energy efficiency standards. One of the things that's done is it's made homes tighter and tighter, and so now we have some quality of air and, um, and ventilation issues. Um, a lot of these things I've, I've worked, actually all of these things up here I've worked on in the past week. The issue we're facing now is that because we made homes so tight, now we want to alter the codes to make you cut holes in them. <laughs> Uh, but that's not enough. Uh, one of the things we've been fighting is uh, a standard to require whole house mechanical ventilation. And so the mechanical you know, system is going to be expensive. We're talking about thousands of dollars to every home. And the, um, uh, the other thing I, 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 you know, I, I want to emphasize a little bit is a lot of this happens at the local level. Codes are adopted locally. These land use decisions are, are local, regional, maybe influenced by the state, but local. But, but the federal government is getting more involved in it. There's a thing called the Office of Sustainable Community. I, I guess the actual title wound up being Office of Sus Sus uh, Housing and Sustainable Communities. Uh, but there's a question as to what that was created in 2010. What does that exist for if not to influence or somehow direct you know, local land use patterns to make them more sustainable, you know. Affordable is usually defined as being near affordable transportation. So there's, there's that going on. There's the issue of energy efficiency and colors. I had another one up there that I think doesn't print in, for some reason in this format, but it was um, stormwater regulation. I, again, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a list of things I've worked on in the past week. So this is very fresh. Um, EPA has some stormwater regulations that are going to hit the Chesapeake Bay area. 
And I haven't looked at the numbers yet, but uh, our environmental staff is telling me they think what that's going to do is add in the tens of, thousand dollar, of, of thousands of dollars to new, uh, new homes as they're being built. Each one, you know, something in the tens of thousands. Also, all property taxes will, will probably go up uh, because of the things they have to do to control what happens when it rains on you. And then the rain, you know, eventually gets in the Chesapeake Bay. So it'll be kind of a, a rain tax if you're anywhere with, in, the, uh, in the general area, all the way up to Pennsylvania and down pretty far south if it rains on you. Um, so there's lots of stuff going on. And, and some of these things are right on the cusp. And so this, as large as some of those cost number were, numbers uh, were and are right now, they're threatening to, uh, to go up a little bit higher even. Uh, so after agreeing very nicely with everything Randall said, let, let me just raise a couple of questions. Um, one about does the um, does growth management cause bubbles? Um, now, there's no doubt that they do impede. Uh, I'm, I'm in general agreement with a lot of the stuff he said. It makes uh, you know supply less elastic. It's in other words, difficult to, to respond to changes in demand. By, uh, you know, that just makes uh, uh, common sense. If you're, if you're restricting uh, building in some sense, when demand changes, it's difficult to, um, to respond. So it does that. If it's, so it's certainly got some kind of contributing factor like that. But if it's really the central cause in this last bubble that we've seen in, in most places, uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that in a, in a short enough run, uh, because you have to build to actually, you know, create more supply, and that takes time and a lot of resources to put up something as big and complex as a house, even without regulation, uh, you're limited into how quickly you can adjust. It's kind of like inelastic anyway. And, and the way to think of this, during this last housing boom, at the peak of the boom, when we were talking about uh, you know, overbuilding and everything, we built two million units, okay, two million homes, single family and multifamily together. We've averaged 1.5 million like for generations, going back to the 1960s. Uh, so we went from an av a long run average of 1.5, it's probably ought to be more like 1.7, 1.8 now, ad adjusting for the fact that we have a, you know, a bigger country, and bigger economy, more homes, more people in it, we went up to, Two million for one year. Uh, that's that's what we have. A, but how? What do we have? We have 130 million housing units. So with maximum effort at the peak of the boom, we can build nationally uh, uh, two million. That's less than two percent. That's so. Question about how far we can really move, even in the absence of these, I would agree, harmful uh, land use restrictions. The other is um, I don't know that the the state to state analysis. I find totally convincing. You, you've got to like, um, again, I apologize, the PowerPoint didn't come out in this on Apple quite as well as it, it did when I, when I put it together. But you have to argue that states, you have to say, well, it's got to, uh, to have a bubble, you have to, uh, you have, to go, have at least a 50% price increase. So states like Idaho and Utah don't have bubbles by this criterion. I think, you know, even though in Idaho prices went up 45% and declined by 30%, I, 
I'm pretty sure if you go to people in Idaho, they'll, they'll kind of think that was a bubble. Uh, the other thing is you have to, Nevada is kind of awkward and you cover it, you have to say that, uh, that Nevada, which had the worst price reduction after the bubble of, of any state. Uh, so that's, uh, it had a very high increase, not the highest increase, but it had the biggest drop. So by that measure, kind of the biggest bubble, you have to argue that that's somehow like one of the growth management states. Um, the argument is that uh, the feds own all the land, which is true. They maybe haven't made as much of it as available as they should have. That's probably also true. But, but um, uh, if you look at Las Vegas, uh, it's got uh, five, 600,000 homes in it. We built 30,000 a year, that's like for a, like a decade, that's like 6% growth. That's really high. Uh, it's, it's difficult to, I think, really argue too much of that that was really too restrictive there. But then the final point I would, would make is d don't worry about this too much because, the, and, and one of the reasons why I, I like to not emphasize the, the, the narrow negative impact of growth management on the bubble is that there's a really big negative effect of just driving prices up continually over and over again. And you don't have to say that it's really the central cause of the bubble to argue that. And that's, that I think is so important that I really would like not to lose that. And so when, when I say the, and this, this goes right into what we've talked about, uh, uh, about the, the challenges of, of dealing with local governments. Um, so here's the, uh, rather than talk about, you know, elasticity of supply and demand, which is, you know, correct, but um, I, I like just to talk about, first of all, before we get to that, I would like to talk about the effect of when you restrict something, when you reduce supply, when you increase the cost, all the things we've been talking about, what happens? Uh, the, the, the very, the, the first thing you see in a principles of economics course, well, when you increase the cost, when you move supply like that, you get less of it and it costs more. You would, I would think, I guess it's because I'm an economist, you could persuade people of this at the local level, but my experience is no. They put on, they, you know, they add impact fees, they restrict the land you can use, uh, you know, make you do environmental impact studies, uh, go beyond national building codes to make construction more expensive. They do all of those things, and then they don't translate that into an increase in house prices. They just, they, they don't. And I can give you, uh, you know, I'll give you one example of what you run into when you go to these, uh, you know, local governments. I sent one of my staff up to, to argue something like this, you know, the kind of the, the adverse consequences of, um, of driving up costs of housing. We had one local government official who didn't listen to him. He stood up and started screaming. He said, I'm not gonna listen to you. You're gonna tell us about economics that doesn't apply here because builders are making profit, and he walked out of the room. So I'll, I'll leave it to your own imagination uh, what kind of a, you know, land use policies you're going to get when a, an official like that has a controlling vote. Um, so anyway, that's that, my, my point is I really like to get this point. You're increasing the cost, you're driving a price. Um, it's hard to do that. The other thing, I'm, uh, I'm not sure if this is, it's a little bit implicit in there is that growth management has a bias towards multifamily, and I will quote there, 
Los Angeles is not the only city of having overzone for multifamily. He goes into the Portland example. And um, one of the things is if you look at production of multifamily, we had some stuff going on in the 70s and 80s. In, in the 70s, we built a million multifamily um, units in one year. In the, in the 80s, we had some years due to a tax change, basically, uh, where we were building six, 700,000 for a couple of years. After we got through all of that, we, we in, the, in the mid 90s, we went up to a nice, really kind of even, what looks to me like a sustainable, kind of moderate level of 300 to 350,000 a year and stayed there a long time. Just from looking at the national level, it didn't look like we had a, uh, uh, what looked like any kind of a real, you know, obvious imbalance there. The other thing is my own personal experience. For the last 15 years, I get a call or email almost every week from some multifamily person who's having trouble getting his project approved. So um, th this, this, uh, this, this business we talked about, trying to exclude working class people from the suburb, that bias really attacks multifamily development out in the suburbs very strongly, I would argue. And I've seen that you know, anecdotally myself over and over again, almost on a weekly basis. Um, and just because you zone something for multifamily doesn't necessarily mean that enough multifamily is going to get built there. The, the nibbyism, you know, not in my backyard can hit when you're trying to approve individual projects. Uh, they can make you, uh, they can, you know, vote not to approve it at any time in the process, and sometimes they do. Uh, homeowners associations, uh, you know, uh, if there is one who, if you don't have to do something to sort of placate them or buy them off, always oppose any kind of multifamily development in, in sort of my experience. Um, but the other thing is I, I don't necessarily know that that co really contradicts what he's saying because what I'm arguing is, uh, what I'm really arguing is yes, you can have problems in Portland, Los Angeles where you're zoning incorrectly, too, zoning too many places for multifamily, not letting enough single family being built, but you can have other places where you don't let enough multifamily be built. Uh, those are not mutually exclusive. The other thing you can have is you can have, and this we, I worry about a lot, you can have conflicting policies where we have, okay, we want you to build nothing but multifamily, but then we have the snibbyism, no, we won't let you build any multifamily. And the result is you, it's really difficult to build anything at all. That's an effect I, I worry about a lot in a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I don't want to take too much time, so I just, and we didn't talk about this a lot, so, but there, here are the series of reforms uh, at the end of the book, um, after now and uh, and you know he does talk about some of these. It doesn't talk about most of them as much as the central um, uh, principle of of um, of you know growth management causing problems. So I, I would argue that these don't follow perfectly from all that, I would expect number nine, just end those local policies that make housing less affordable. Uh, I would expect that to be more up at, at, uh, at number one. And um, I think I'll just leave it there and let you read you know, the book, with it, maybe with that in mind, and, and you can make up your, your own mind about that. Uh, I said I wanted to couple, uh, cover a couple of points that uh, you know, were, were in individual paragraphs in the book, but I thought, think were so important and interesting, I didn't want to overlook them. One is in chapter seven, you know, we have 2.2 billion acres of land, and if you count up the, num uh, the, the families we have in urban areas, you can give each one of them 
an acre, and, and we're covering less than 3% of the nation's land. So that's a good example of you know, just the basic land use statistics that people who argue against sprawl somehow overlook or manage to twist. I did a, uh, an article on that in 2006, which I, uh, yeah, so, so that's right. You know, after all this explosive sprawl we've had, we, we've sprawled up to cover like 3.0% of the nation's land, basically. Uh, the other thing I just want, as a final comment, here, here's a real interesting point from Chapter 11 about excessive regulation. It tends to put small companies out of business and discourage the national companies as well. The resulting loss of competition you know, helps keep home prices high. That, uh, boy, that's, that's a really difficult point to get any person in local government to pay attention to. But, fact, but I see it come up in a different ways over and over again. So if there's anything you can do as, as a subject for next book, if you need one, if there's a way to expand on that, that I think that's a really important point and, and you know, a difficult one to get people to see. So I will uh, end there. If you, have, um, if you have any questions, there's my contact info. You know, feel free to call or, uh, or email. Thank you, Paul. Before we open it up to questions, I just want to give Randy a minute or two. If, if you want, no requirement if you'd like to respond or else we can go. Okay, well, we'll all start taking some questions. And uh, please uh, wait for the microphone, uh, identify yourself in an affiliation, uh, and I would emphasize if you could make it a form of a question rather than a statement. Anybody like to be the first one? Do I have one? No, for Randall. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Randall, could you, I mean, uh, the, the last point about the connection, not just for in families owning homes, but the connection to businesses and the economy, can you just say a few words about, like, how that works? Just expand on that, Eskosh? Um, well, I think the point Paul was making was that uh, there's three kinds, broadly, three kinds of home builders. There's the small home builders who build one or two homes a year. There's the national home builders who are building thousands and thousands of homes in communities all across the countries. And then there's the regional home builders who focus on one area and might build several hundred homes a year just in their state or urban area. And uh, in the Oregonian newspaper in Portland had an article a few years ago saying Oregon's land use planning was doing great because it had pushed out the nationals and had put all the local home builders out of business and so they only had the regionals left and they were making much higher profits than they were making before. And so they were all excited about how, how well land use planning was working for them. Uh, too often, uh, we politicians judge things by how well they work for selected businesses. They ignore the cost to the businesses that are excluded and most important, they ignore the cost to the consumer. Uh, I see this all the time in uh, communities like Boulder, Colorado that have imposed some of the most restrictive land use rules in the country. Uh, Boulder housing prices are higher than about 95% of the homes in the rest of the country, and yet you talk to the land use planners and the politicians there and they say, oh, it's because we've made Boulder such a wonderful place to live. It's increased the demand so much. That's why housing prices are high. It has nothing to do with the restrictions on supply that we've imposed. So uh, I, 
I wonder if maybe there should be a requirement that people take some economics courses before they're allowed to run for office, and uh, maybe even and certainly a requirement that urban planners take economics courses because uh, they uh, seem to no, they don't even know enough economics to be able to run a McDonald's. I don't think you'd want to put them in charge of a fast food restaurant, much, much less your entire city or regional area. As an economist who's worked a long time in public policy, I would certainly second that. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of basic economics. Well, uh, if we question right here in front. My name is Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Um, well, I mm, did my uh, city and regional planning uh, master's from U UNC Chapel Hill quite some time ago, in the 70, 1972. But uh, I never worked as an urban planner. I was more of an environmental planning and management, like the EPA type. Uh, given that, um, uh, your article I'm looking at, which says how urban planners cause the housing bubble, now, most of my urban planner colleagues or friends that I hear from, and including my experience with environmental protection regulations, that it is, it, it's pretty hard for the real planners to get their message across to the politicians. They're the ones who finally call the shot. And, uh, and of course, as um, city and regional planning, we did take microeconomics and, <laughs> and uh, you know, econom econometrics courses and so on. Uh, of course, that's forgotten by the time you really do things. So, um, but my point is that really the problem is with the politicians, isn't it? I mean, most of the land use planning uh, process is all the political leaders uh, finally make the decision and the planners are there to be like bureaucrats, you know, supporting and uh, often they are in collusion with the politicians because their job depends on them. Well, if, if uh, UNC Urban Planning School taught people microeconomics, that's uh, an exception rather than the rule. Uh, most urban planning schools, yeah, most urban planning schools are uh, affiliated with architecture schools. A few of them are affiliated with real estate schools, and the ones affiliated with real estate schools tend to emphasize economics more. The ones affiliated with architecture schools believe that we shape our cities and our cities shape us. In other words, if we, the planners, can design the cities, they will mold the behavior of the people living in those cities. And that really is, is what they teach in the schools. I also went to urban planning school in the 1970s. Uh, I went for basically one year, and what I learned, and I took a course in economics which was not required. Nobody else in the school took that course. It was a course in urban economics, and what I learned was that everything taught in the urban economics course that was based on data and models and testing against reality was exactly the opposite of what they were teaching in the urban planning school, which was based on intuition and hypotheses and not testing those hypotheses against reality. Uh, 30 years later, I found that the ideas being taught in the urban planning school that I rejected when I dropped out of that school uh, had become the dominant paradigm in Oregon and California and Hawaii and, and many other states. Um, yes, it's, the urban planners can't control things, but they suck the politicians in. 
They give the politicians uh, stories about uh, how wonderful their city will be, how it will attract the creative class of, of people who are going to earn such high incomes. I mean, the, a great story they're telling now is if you just build a streetcar, you'll generate billions of dollars of economic development. Uh, no city has ever generated a single dollar of economic development with a streetcar. Removing streetcars has probably generated more economic development than building them, but uh, they tell this story, and so now cities all over the country are lining up to build, build streetcars. The American Planning Association has 30,000 members, two-thirds of whom work for government, and they have written model planning laws that their state chapters promote at the state level. And most of the states that have passed these laws pass them uh, at the behest of the urban planners. So urban planners don't control everything, but they're having an awful lot of say about things in which they really know very little about, and they're doing a lot more harm than good. Uh, and, uh, and, and we do have the mentality among politicians that, as, as Adrian and, and Paul pointed, both pointed out, that uh, they feel like they should be able to control everything, and the urban planners are giving them the tools to do that, uh, and so they're gladly, I mean, almost every city in the country has an urban planner on its staff. Why? They don't have an economist on their staff, but they do have an urban planner on their staff. <laughs> that's right. Actually, yeah, having the economist on their staff would actually prove. Let me, let yeah, me that's true. A, let me ask a follow-up on that, because uh, I think it's, uh, to me, a little bit of both that the urban planners have certainly played a role. But uh, it seems to me that part of the maybe outcome is this desire to have housing be both consumption and investment. This, this sense of homeowners be wanting the, their desire to limit the supply to drive up the price because that is their largest asset. So, uh, to, you know, and that seems to be something that would feed more through the political side than the planning side. Um, you know, get some reaction. And, and I thought it was interesting that Paul, if uh, I guess if we had someone here from the realtors, they would talk about how important it was to run up housing prices. But of course, the builders have a little more uh, sense of uh, that runs away, runs away demand. Uh, well, if we are uh, well, I, I can address that. Um, it, I've observed Oregon's land use planning process for its entire life because uh, it was passed in 1973, and I was just getting active on, on these issues in the, that time. And what I've seen is that you create rules, you write rules, and you create a public involvement process to help implement those rules. You give people a sense of entitlement. They feel like. All the land in the state is theirs. It belongs to them, and nobody should be allowed to do anything with their land without their permission because that's what the rules say. Right. They actually say that. And when you have that feeling of entitlement, then you want to rigidly control what everybody else does with their land. In places like Texas and Georgia and North Carolina where they don't have those rules, nobody has any sense of entitlement. Nobody blinks an eye, hardly. If somebody wants to put a gravel pit down the road or a multifamily, there's occasional controversies, but they're much less intense and they're much uh, less frequent than they are in places that have passed these rules. And so uh, I think just giving that sense of entitlement is, is itself a big problem. And I see this happening uh, as a part of urban planners. They have these meetings. They call them visionary charrettes, where you create a vision for your community's future 50 years from now. Well, once you've 
created the vision, you wouldn't dare let the market uh, work because the market might not achieve your vision. So you have to use the power of government to make sure your vision is achieved because uh, it is, after all, the ideal vision. Yeah, I, I just expand on that. That's In some ways, that's the vicious cycle because it's that that sense of entitlement manifested in the public officials that, that is really make, makes it worse. And it's exacerbated by go to uh, you know, a Virginia or Maryland town's uh, city council and grab the agenda or go to the website and grab the agenda. And what you'll see is that typical city council member has 30 agenda items in any given weekly council meeting, the vast majority of which are some kind of land use decision you know, approve this, change this zoning waiver, blah, 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 you know, it's a lot of it's on consent calendar, so it doesn't even come up in the public hearing, but you don't have, haven't been on the job as a city councilman for 10 minutes before you realize land use is most of your job, and therefore, land use must be most of your job, right? So, <laughs> therefore, land use can't happen without us doing our job, and, and it just, wham, you're, you're, you're locked into that. And when you combine that, going back to your question, with the fact that the planning staff fundamentally believes that or doesn't have any knowledge of or belief that the market solves any of the interactions among the various components of real estate, using that term very broadly, that it is required that the city sorts out the connection between different people doing different things with their land and the transportation system that connects them all, uh, or else nothing will work. And so they have that sense of mandate, necessity, and the politicians have this sense of entitlement that we have to control it all because that's what's on the agenda. You just don't get out from under it. We've run a little bit long, so I, I know that our Arthur and our panelists will, will stay around, but I want to thank the audience and thank the panels. Uh, and also welcome you uh, to lunch upstairs in our Jaeger Conference Center. If you just go right out up the spiral staircase and there are bathrooms on the right, there will also be copies of the book for sale. And I'm sure Randy would be happy to sign copies. Sure. Thank you.